So are you ready for a little science experiment? Yeah! Okay, so we're gonna need a few things. Your notebook and a pencil. Got it. Sandwich baggies. Got it. Big black Sharpie marker. Got it. Tape, 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 tape. Gotta find some tape. And finally, the last thing we're gonna need is bread. Bread. Go grab the bread. So we are gonna grow a friend. <laughs> I don't think Mold's a friend. <laughs> Hey there, everybody. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, producers Taylor Quimby and Eric Janik are here to present another edition in our series, Inside In. Short science stories for families and individuals who want to discover how, even when they're stuck inside, the natural world ties us together. Today, they're going to teach us to appreciate a pair of organisms that we often just step right over or immediately pitch into the garbage. One is green, understated, wise, the Yoda of plants. The other is fuzzy and a little funny smelling, the fungi that make the world go round. Our friends, moss and mold. And we'll start with producer Taylor Quimby and his eight-year-old assistant producer, Phineas. I think that mold is our friend, but also it's it's gross. Also, it's super gross. Maybe you've grabbed a loaf of bread, hoping to make PB&J, only to find a green carpet growing inside the bag. Or dug into a carton of strawberries, felt something squishy and soft between your fingers, and looked down to see a sunken berry covered in strands of white fuzz. You may have reacted something like this. Look at that. Oh, oh, (laughs) that's really gross. Yes, mold can be gross. But when you think about it, mold is also pretty awesome. Mold is a what? Mold is a term that we use to describe fungi that are microscopic throughout their lives. This is Nick Money. No, he is not a professional wrestler or reality TV celebrity, and yes, that is his real name. He's a professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I've studied mushroom biology or fungal biology for many years, so I'm a mycologist. If you've ever seen a mushroom poking out from the forest floor, What you should know is that what you are seeing is only the tip of the fungal iceberg. Most of the time that organism exists in the form of these very thin threads, about 10 times thinner than a human hair. And that's the feeding colony of the fungus. That fruit body is the mushroom we see in the woods. Mold is slightly different. It's an iceberg without a tip. Mold is a fungus that does make something like a mushroom, but that mushroom is also just too small to see. And strangely enough, you actually have more in common with that iceberg than you do with the plants and the trees that you see outside. In, in an evolutionary sense and, an, and a genetic sense, fungi are much more closely related to animals, including ourselves, than they are to plants. Plants soak up sunlight and make their own food for themselves, inside their own cells. Whereas fungi actually break down materials produced by other organisms. Sort of like us. We call them decomposers. Mold is the hungry friend who's always ready to finish your leftovers so they don't go to waste. You gonna eat that? That looks real good. Mold and other fungi also serve our ecosystems by breaking down all the dead stuff. Without fungi, all those fallen tree trunks and dead leaves that clutter up the forest floor would pile up and up and up. 
choking out forest life as we know it. But have you ever wondered, how did a microscopic fungus you associate with the forest get onto your food? Well, it didn't really have to travel at all. It was with you the whole time. Almost every breath that we take, and I say this from first breath to last gasp, we were actually inhaling fungal spores. If you want to know just how intertwined you and mold really are, there's an easy at-home experiment you can try. There are lots of variations online, but here's the gist. Get a bag of bread, take out one slice, and using your unwashed, normal, everyday at-home hands... Rub your hands all over that piece of bread. Get it in your elbow pit. Yeah, there we go. What? Okay, all right, good. All right, so now open that bag. Afterwards, place the piece of bread in a plastic Ziploc bag with a little air in there, maybe a little bit of water, and label it with a marker. Dirty hands. Then give your hands a thorough Corona level hand washing. What's your go to hand washing song? I just can't do like 30 minutes. I mean, 30 seconds. <laughs> 30 minutes. <laughs> Next, rub your now clean hands over another slice of bread, just like you did the first time. Okay, so let's put that in bag numero dos. Label that one clean hands. Finally, tape the bags somewhere out of the way, and then you just wait. Day one, still no mold on the bread, sadly. Hmm, day two, no mold. While you're waiting, let's talk a little bit more about the life cycle of your household food-based mold. And let's start with one of the millions of wee little spores that Professor Money was talking about. The ones that are floating in the air, totally invisible, all around you. The spore slowly, slowly settles through the air, and then it alights on the surface of a what? A tomato. As soon as it hits that tomato, if there's moisture, if there's free water... It'll slurp it up. Expand, it'll, it'll inflate a little, and then it'll begin to put out a little thread. And then another... And those individual threads will begin to branch. And then they'll branch, and those branches will branch. And then those branches will branch. And quite soon, really just within the course of a few hours then, you've got this colony, and it'll have a circular form. And as they're branching out from the center, they're absorbing more water. And they're using enzymes to break down the tomato, digesting it right there on the surface, like an external stomach. Eventually, in the center, as the tomato breaks down and shrivels up, that part of the mold colony won't have any food left. And so instead of growing across the skin of the tomato... It'll grow out of it, and it'll form stalks that project into the air. Microscopic mushrooms. And on the tips of those stalks, it will produce millions and millions of spores. Each of them the size of a bacteria, just a speck. Some species of mold actually eject their spores like little rockets. Poof. But most of them just wait for a little air current to take flight or get help from a friend. They can be picked up by insects, like fruit flies that will carry them around on their feet as they fly, so they can be dispersed on the wings of fruit flies. And then the process starts all over again. Mic check. Blah. Okay, it's working. So it's day... 
something something. Yeah, I don't know what day it is. I lost track. So let's see what we got. Um, clean hands, a little mold. A tiny, a little bit of mold on, like, the side of it. What about dirty hands? Dirty hands, a lot of mold. Mostly mold, like, all over, like, the whole thing. Ugh. Lots yeah. of little spots. Yeah. What color is it? Blue. Blue? I would call that green. Gosh, am I color? Actually. I mean, look, it, like, totally matches like, the wall. It's, like, Teal, tealish white. Scientists think there are millions of species of fungi, and there are thousands of known species of mold. Nick Money says there's a couple you might even have heard of. Aspergillus is, is a very common kind of mold that will grow on food material. Penicillium is another one. And yes, that is in fact the very mold used to discover and make the antibiotic penicillin. Nick says that a lot of these household molds are harmless, meaning cutting a bit of mold off a piece of food and eating the rest of it is a pretty safe choice. However, there are, there's a subset of people for whom mold exposure is more of a problem. These are the mold problems you might have heard about. Houses that weren't built properly and so never fully dry out and have mold basically growing all through the walls, or places that get flooded or have some other kind of severe water damage that was never dealt with. Too much mold can trigger allergies. Sometimes there can be so many spores floating around indoors that you can actually start to see them, like dust. So in those kind of situations, there can be so many spores that they can actually provoke an asthma attack. So for anybody that suffers from asthma, exposure to large numbers of these spores is very, very problematic. And asthma, of course, is a, can be a very serious and even life-threatening condition. The scariest of these bad mold situations are when you get molds that actually produce a kind of fungal poison called a mycotoxin. But remember, every breath you take is full of mold spores. As long as there isn't too much, it's mostly harmless. And the same is true of our moldy bread. Just a colony of happy decomposers filling up a plastic baggie. Does it gross you out to think about that the fact that there's like fungus on your hands all the time? Well, before I eat and after I eat, I think I should always wash my hands. That's a good idea for a lot of reasons. There are other germs you don't really want on your hands, and you can't see those either. But let me just say, if the idea of eating mold freaks you out, well, let me introduce you to one of my very favorite foods, cheese. So I have in front of me yes. a cam- Cambozola okay. black label. So this has a rind... Gosh, if I had to describe it, I would say it's almost like the color of elephant skin. It's gray. Yes, it's a, yeah. Is it, it's a, is it a little bit furry? I, I don't know that I would totally call it furry, but it does it, it have... It may have been. It may have been furry once <laughs> before it was squished down and put in plastic. So I think it's a mixture of mucor and certainly penicillium, which is the blue mold. This is Sister Noella Marcelino, who has my favorite combination of qualifications for this episode. She is an artisanal cheesemaker, a fungi-focused microbiologist, and a Benedictine nun. Throughout the centuries, monasteries were centers of culture, parcels of civilization. Many of these cheeses began in monasteries, like cheddar. Munster means, comes from monasterio. A lot of cheeses are made in a cave or cellar. 
well, not made really, but aged, ripened. Well, you know, when you taste a cheese that's supposed to be ripened, when you taste that when it's only a few days old, it's going to be have a horrible taste. It's going to taste rubbery. It will have no flavor. And the reason these tasteless, rubbery cheeses are placed in a cave is so that they can be closer to the earth, to the living wonder that is our soil. Because that's where these microorganisms naturally live. They say that within a gram of soil, there's more diversity than in the rainforest. These are the same types of fungal spores that wind up on your bread or the rotting tomato that cheesemakers encourage to colonize their cheese. The threads of the mold snake through it, breaking down, eating cheesy proteins, and literally creating the flavors that many people have come to know and love as a byproduct. And I'm wondering, if I take a little taste of this, Mm-hmm. I've got a cracker, of course. Okay. Um, so when I try this cheese, I mean, what should I be thinking about in terms of the flavor and the complexity and what the mold brings? What should I be tasting for? Well, I think, first of all, it's nice to smell it, too, if you're into smelling cheese. Um, and what I would say is one thing you're going to notice, because that must have been aged in a cave, is an earthy smell. Uh, does that does earthiness come to mind? Yeah. The French would call that smell. It's like the champignon de Paris. It is like the mushrooms of Paris. So for some people, the smell of earth, and you could say degradation, <laughs> is attractive. And it, you know that's part of eating cheese. I mean, we are definitely eating breakdown products. And the mold does something else, too. It coats the cheese in a loving, furry embrace, protecting it from other things that could contaminate it and make it inedible. In a cheese, like, I don't know if you've ever had a Tome de Savoie or a Senecter, there are a whole class of cheeses that would have kind of this gray coat on them. Yes, she is talking about the rind, that hard crust that some cheeses have. And you may have wondered, is this edible? You can't eat it. Though the squeamish might not want to after hearing this. If you were to look at that cheese at about 48 hours in the cave, you would see little hairs that are white, sort of gray. And at the end of every hair is a round ball. Um, If you look under a microscope, that's called a sporangium. Mucor would have thousands of those hairs with a little ball on top. And what happens is there are spores on the surface of that ball and they break off and then eventually the cheese is covered with a gray coat. So you just have to think that, you know, what's going on on a rind, it's it's alive. When a cheese becomes famous, the flavor people have fallen in love with is the flavor of a specific mold or combination of molds and the way that cheesemakers almost shepherd it onto their cheese. Sister Noella has a friend, Jim, who calls himself a cheese philosopher. He says, you know, people are fine talking about wine and, you know, flowery images and fruity. But he said, do they really want to talk about what cheese reminds them of? Like locker rooms or smelly socks? Or death, mold and fungi are decomposers. 
They come for foods when it gets old. They break down trees and plants when they've fallen in the woods. And they come for us when we die too. I think in general, we tend to not want to look at degradation. Um, certainly we don't want to look at, at death. It's frightening. Uh, I have found as a cheesemaker, I've thought about it often and for a long time, that actually we are, def are eating a degradation product and it's actually delicious. So I feel it's a sort of an unconscious way to prepare you for the end of a cycle. If you don't eat it, it'll get rolled. Yep, eventually. That's what happens. They're always with us through, throughout our lives. They're in us, they're on us. Yes, there's, there's a certain Zen-like sense in which we can accept that interaction with the microscopic world. And yeah, there's something beautiful about that. Absolutely. Nick Money, Sister Noella, and I agree. Perhaps there is a little magic or grace in even the fuzziest, stinkiest mold. That's mucor. Yeah. Isn't that gorgeous? It's amazing. You know, people might say, well, why as you as a Benedictine nun, why are you studying science and not theology? But I see God in that. You know, uh, I look at that creation and with wonder. You should still toss out your moldy bread, though. Gross. All right, bye, mold. Up next, our executive producer, Erica Janik. And now, executive producer Erica Janik on an organism celebrated in the Japanese national anthem. That's just a fun fact that we aren't going to elaborate on in any way. Here's Erica. So here's a bit about me. I am an enthusiastic but largely unknowledgeable moss lover. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, a very mossy place. Got engaged near the Hall of Mosses in Olympic National Park. My phone is filled with close-up glamour shots of moss. I just love the bright green color and the textures. So I decided that now is the time, when we're all sticking closer to home, to get to know my local mosses. And the first thing I learned is that, apparently, there's one thing to clear up right away. So when my mother tells people that I study moss, their first response to her is always, oh, she studies that fuzzy stuff on bread. Oh, that's mold, that's a fungus. This is Dr. Jessica Budke, a professor at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville who studies mosses. So number one, moss isn't mold. I don't know who needs to hear this, but please stop calling moss mold. Okay, there is one reason you might legitimately confuse moss and mold, which we will get to later, but that is barely an excuse. In fact, besides apparently being confused with mold, there are a lot of things we call moss that aren't moss at all. Spanish moss? Not moss. It's actually in the pineapple family. Club mosses? Nope. Those are more closely related to ferns. Moss pink and moss flocks, which are pink flowers that are definitely not mosses. Carrageenan moss? No, 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 no. Not a moss. 
It's a red algae, often used as a thickener in food. And just to confuse things more, the features that make moss moss are also just a list of things they don't have. They don't have seeds. They don't have fruits. They don't have flowers. They don't have vasculature, so internal cells that are piping and moving water around inside of them. So what are mosses? Mosses are very small green plants. So they're photosynthetic. So they use air, water, and sunlight, and they make their own food. Um, so that's the, one of the big things that distinguishes them from mold. Mold has to eat other things. Mosses can feed themselves. Mosses are tiny, simple plants. In fact, mosses are some of the very simplest plants on Earth. They have no roots or stems or any internal structure to hold them up. In fancy science language, mosses are bryophytes. The bryophytes are 450 million years old. That's 50 million years before there was a fern or any other plant on our planet. This is Annie Martin, better known as Moss and Annie. She's a self-taught moss specialist in North Carolina. She runs a mossery, a moss nursery, writes and teaches about moss, rescues moss in danger of being killed. It hurt my heart, so I started rescuing them. She's basically the best friend a moss could ever have. Mosses can't grow very tall. Ecologist Robin Kimmerer has written that at the scale of a moss, walking through the woods as a six-foot human is a lot like flying over the continent at 32,000 feet. You can see that it's there, but like the view from a plane, the details, the life gets lost. Which means the best way to appreciate moss is to get down to their level, get onto the ground. In order to notice them, you really have to zoom in, right? You have to sort of get down on your hands and knees and get your face really close to the ground. Once you zoom in, you really see that it's this entire miniature world, right? It's like this miniature forest. But being small and simple hasn't stopped them. Mosses inhabit nearly every ecosystem on Earth. Mosses are opportunists. If you ask moss to describe its dream home, it would likely say, cool dark, wet. Places where other plants really struggle. And because they don't have roots, they can't dig very deep to find moisture and even pull some water right out of the air. But that said, there are mosses that have adapted to drier climates. Mosses grow on trees, sidewalks, gardens, roofs, even poop. They're called dung mosses. You have to go to far northern Alaska or far southern Chile in order to see them. And, and they're really neat because not only do they grow on poop, which is cool in and of itself, but besides that, their, their capsules make odors that smell like poop, that attract the flies, and the flies get their sticky spores stuck to them and then take the spores to the next piece of poop. And so each place you find this moss is basically a place where a pile of poop used to be. And they so smell like poop. It's really neat, right? Like a plant that's made poop smells to trick a fly into moving it around on the landscape. So it can get, like, how do you get from poop to poop as a moss? You trick a fly. So there it is. The one reason you may be forgiven for confusing moss and mold. Did you miss it? Because mosses don't have seeds, they, just like mold, reproduce via spores. Mostly, mosses rely on the wind to carry their spores around, but sphagnum moss has evolved this little capsule, which explode, shooting the spores into the air at 36,000 times the force of gravity. I'd like to see a mold do that. 
So really, mosses will grow anywhere that has moisture and nutrients or where it can trick flies. And jumping on that sometimes bouncy moss is actually beneficial, Annie assured me. So you're saying it's okay to do that? It's advisable to do that. Oh, great. That helps the plant fragments or the rhizoids of a colony to attach to the soil or whatever substrate. But you could sit on it, you can lay down on it. Now this isn't true of all mosses. Some are very fragile, but there's a whole group of mosses that can be walked on, the kinds that many people plant instead of grass in their yards. Many of us are growing moss by accident. A patch between the bricks on a front walk, a sliver between the shingles on our roofs, a fertile field under the downspout behind the garage. But purposefully growing moss, that's a different story. So a few weeks ago, I tried to grow my own moss on a log using some instructions that I found on the internet. The recipe called for one and a half cups of moss. So I went out in my yard to find some. Walking around my yard right now, I have several patches of moss here some growing around my plants. But I think I'm gonna take the moss from the back of my house. Then I mix that with two cups of yogurt. I've seen some recipes that say that you should put it in a blender. I'm just mixing it by hand in this big bowl. Um, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is, but hopefully this works. We'll find out, hopefully uh, in a couple weeks and I slathered it on a log. Do you know what happened to that batch? Jordan. That first no. batch? No. No. no, 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 Well, it turns out that moss mixed into a slurry with yogurt is irresistible to dogs. Mine ate the whole first batch. So I mixed another one and hid the log in a different part of the yard. But both Annie and Jessica said I probably shouldn't have done this at all. It yields very inconsistent results, and so I consider it a haphazard method. Why waste your blender, and how many blenders would it take to fill up a yard? So trying to get mosses to grow places they aren't already growing is really hard. If you really want more mosses in your life, it might take a while, because you have to try to replicate the types of places and conditions that mosses already like to grow. Annie had a different recommendation for growing moss, one that doesn't involve blenders or buttermilk. And you can make your own moss dish garden, which would be in an open container, or you can use a jar or some type of a glass container to create a terrarium. And it's fun for all ages. I must say that the older you are, you may even get more excited than the little kids. The place to start your dish garden is with harvesting mosses growing in your area. But rather than just growing mosses, you might just want to get to know it. This might be tricky, as there are as many as 13,000 species of moss, and most don't have common names. Plants aren't like the bird community. The bird community has official common names for all the birds. We don't have official common names for all the mosses, but that just means you can make up your own common names and decide what you want to call them. There are some really good visual guides to help you tell your new green friends apart. You can find them on Annie's website, Mountain Moss, and in the perfectly named A Visit to the Miniature Forest that Jessica helped write. 
Jessica had some tips for getting to know mosses. First, it helps to see where the moss is growing. Many mosses prefer a particular surface, like rocks or the base of trees. Some mosses are very substrate specific, so they're, they're only growing on the sides of trees, or they're only growing on a tree branch, or they're only growing on rocks, or they're only growing on soils. Then, how is it growing? Upright or sprawling? So one of the growth forms um, is, has mosses that are upright, that are often in little cushions, and that don't branch very much, versus the other kind of mosses, which are sprawling and lay flat and sort of grow along their substrate. So they often look like little ferns or little feathers, and they just have tons and tons of branches. Because there are so many different species, Jessica thinks it's best to start one level up from the individuals, at the group or genus level. The easiest ones to start with are the big ones. So mostly there's one called the hairy-capped moss, and it's um, Polytricum communi. And it's probably, like, if you put your fingers out, it's like two inches tall or so, um, which is pretty big for a moss. Um, it's often, and it looks from the top very much like a star shape. When you hold the leaves up to the light, you can't see through them. And they have these really pointy leaves, dark green, star-shaped. Um, and then that little capsule that they have, the common name comes from the fact that it has a little cap of tissue on the capsule that's hairy. And so you can literally pull off the little hairy cap to help you sort of know that you found the hairy cap moss. That's a really good one. The other one people usually know a lot is um, called the pincushion moss. It's in, a, in the genus Leucobrium. And so it's also called the white moss. But they look like little pincushions. They're a minty green colored moss that grows in these cute little tufts that you can poke. Um, and, and you definitely should poke moss and pet them. Like, petting moss is great. Mosses also make really great neighbors, especially if you like your neighbors unobtrusive, quietly letting you know when things are wrong. Well, so mosses don't have roots, so they don't mine the soil for water. Almost all the water they get comes from rainwater. And so, so they're getting unfiltered rainwater that they're absorbing into their bodies, which means that they're highly impacted by what's happening in rainwater. So if there's changes in the pH of the rainwater, there's too much pollution in the rainwater. So mosses can tell us a lot about pollution and water quality. Armed with my new moss identification tools, I went to visit one of my favorite expanses of moss, a patch I now know is studded with pincushion mosses. And then I also like to think about it as making friends, right? You're like going out and like meeting a bunch of new friends and a bunch of new mosses. And then the next time you're out on your walk, it's like, hey, what's up? How you doing, Pletricum? How you doing, Hypnum? And you can sort of say hi to them as you're like out there in the field, checking them out again. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby, Phineas Quimby, Erica Janik, Justine Paradise, and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Special thanks to Mawson Annie Martin, author of The Magical World of Moss Gardening, and Dr. Jessica Budke. Also thanks to Benjamin Wolfe, Megan Biongo-Daniels, and Patrick Pulowski. Maureen McMurray is the director of Painting Roses Red. If you would like even more Outside In, we have more for you. Sign up for our newsletter. You can find a link to sign up on our website, outsideinradio.org. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.